Acts 27. We are so near to the end of our study of the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, one more week. And all of this time, much of what we have studied and examined has been in the life of the Apostle Paul, as Luke has recorded uh, this Apostle's ministry through three missionary journeys and one last journey now leading him to Rome. And even though Paul has stood before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa in Caesarea, and each one has has stated that uh, Paul has done nothing to be worthy of the bonds that he has, has or the chains that he has as a prisoner. Nonetheless, Paul remains a prisoner of Rome. And yet, Paul knows that this is his ticket, his way to fulfill God's promise that Paul would give testimony before Caesar and in Rome. And so... Let's begin with a word of prayer. And begin our study of chapter 27. Father, we thank you. And we bless you for the privilege of having come before your throne of grace to acknowledge you as our God and our King in worship, in praise, and in thanksgiving. And now we come, Lord, to worship you in attentiveness to your word. We ask that you would anoint us and bless us with your Holy Spirit. Grant us wisdom and understanding, Lord, of these words today. And while we deal with such a long narrative, I know, Father, that there are many scriptural, spiritual, biblical truths that we need to face and come to grips with. Lord, may your Spirit teach us these things. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have heard the phrase, a tempest in a teapot? A few of you. Well, for those who may have never heard the phrase, a tempest in a teapot, its, it's meaning is simply this. A small or unimportant event that is overreacted to, as if it were of considerably more consequence. In other words, a small event that has been exaggerated out of proportion. That is, a, tea, a tempest in a teapot. Another way of understanding what a tempest in a teapot means is the phrase, much ado about nothing. That's certainly a phrase I'm sure many of you have heard. If a person, here's an example, if a person makes a big fuss over two or three people not showing up to a party where 200 people are already in attendance, that would be called a tempest in a teapot. With that definition in mind, I've chosen to title today's message, a teapot in a tempest. And redefine then, for that particular phrase, 
The meaning that a teapot in the tempest is a very large and a very significant event that is underreacted to. As if it were of considerably less consequence. You'll see what I mean as we get into our study today. But the teapot in this chapter is the ship that is carrying 276 passengers to Italy. The Apostle Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus being the most significant travelers in this ship. The significance and importance of this event is not underestimated at all by Paul, and certainly not by the Lord. The significance of the consequences will eventually be understood by all of its passengers. And because this is a very long passage, we want to look at this chapter in sections. And, and there are certain things that we need to pay close attention to. First of all, pay close attention to the details. The details of the ancient methods of sailing that Luke applies to his account, as well as the precise traveling route which he describes throughout this chapter. Why is this important? Well, it is important because it helps to counter the cynicism of critics who claim inaccuracies in the scriptures, in particular, inaccuracies in the book of Acts. Many years ago, there were these Scottish free thinkers, thinkers who were critics of the Bible, critics of the things that the Bible had written. And one of them, uh, uh, Sir William Ramsey, had, had gone off into, uh, uh, actually into the Middle East and into the Mediterranean area to go and see if he could find any of these or any... Or, or, none of these places uh, just to prove that the Bible is wrong and everywhere he went he saw that the Bible was right he became a Christian and then became a great advocate of the um, inerrancy of the Bible and all because of this chapter so that's why it's important to see how detailed Luke is in his writing secondly take note of the theology involving the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We're going to deal a little bit with that particular thought as it applies to the issue of salvation. Thirdly, consider greatly the faith and the trust the Apostle Paul has in the Lord God whom he serves, as well as pay close attention to his leadership qualities among men that don't even really know who he is. An interesting story lay before us. And we begin here in verse 1 where it says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, the word we there is telling us that Luke is now uh, revealing himself once again as a member of Paul's party here, has always been actually getting to Jerusalem, getting to Caesarea, and then eventually to uh, Rome. He again includes himself in the account. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some, of, uh, some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Which means that he was handpicked by Caesar Nero himself, and he answered directly to Caesar. So this was an important centurion. So entering a ship of a dramatium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, or Sidon, and Julius uh, treated Paul kindly 
and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. In other words, they were going against uh, the direction that the ship was going. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, passing it with difficulty. If you notice twice now, Luke mentions moving along in difficulty or with difficulty. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lazea. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Now here is Paul, a prisoner in chains, yet he advises not only the centurion but even the captain of the ship, Man, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship but also our lives. Well, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, not Arizona. They could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, Supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they, sa- they sailed close by Crete. Very detailed. Not only of what they do, and we'll see more of that, but also of where they went and how they hugged the coast. Especially in the times that they were sailing. You see, while Paul knew that he would reach Rome because of the Lord's promise given to him in Acts 23, verse 11, where it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. Luke takes great care to detail the difficulties and the the delays in the voyage. It is also clear that Luke is one of his companions and his personal physician, while Aristarchus acted as Paul's servant. We've met Aristarchus before since he was with Paul in Ephesus when Paul was having all kinds of problems there with the riots about Diana and the Ephesians and all. Aristarchus was there. Aristarchus was with Paul during all of his troubles in Jerusalem as well. And he would be with him throughout his imprisonment. As Paul would later write in Colossians 4 verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. You know, this kind of lets us know that... Ministry is not an easy thing. That many times when you're in ministry, it's going to bring you through difficulties or take you through difficult times. And here's the thing. We don't see Aristarchus saying, you know what, Paul, I love you, but, you know, that's about time for me to leave. Uh, I think I'm hearing God say he wants me somewhere else. You know, he hung in with Paul. That says a lot about the servanthood of Aristarchus. To the extent that in Paul's writing as a prisoner, he says, Oh, by the way, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, (laughs) greets you. That's hanging in there in ministry, folks. It's knowing that there are difficulties in ministry. And knowing that God is with you all the way through it. Well, the travel plan was to stay along the coast as they sailed to have some 
protection from the Mediterranean Sea, and their, their first port of call was Sidon, or Sidon, 70 miles north of Caesarea. It is there that the centurion sees Paul as a person that he could trust and gives Paul liberty to visit fellow Christians in Sidon before sailing again. Now, we're going to go along and read some of these things, and then we need to ask ourselves some questions. Because we need to apply some of the things that are going on in Paul's life to us. So here's the question about this uh, kindness that, uh, that the centurion Julia shows to Paul. Let's ask ourselves some questions as we study the chapter. When, when people come into contact with us, as Julius came into contact with Paul, when people come into contact with us, do they trust us? Do they trust us? As believers in Jesus Christ, do they trust us? Do they see the character of God shining through us? Do they see our integrity in Christ? And then respond in kind. In other words, do they see the difference in our lives because we are believers in Jesus Christ? No matter what the world may think, no matter what some people may say, if they see integrity, if they see character, if they see honesty, if they see humility, are they seeing Jesus Christ in us? Obviously, he saw Christ in Paul. And it is an encouragement to us then to realize how important it is that Christ's character shines through us in the presence of unbelievers, in the presence of those who may not know Christ. While in, my, while in Myra of Lycia, they, they board another ship, which is from Alexandria in Egypt, a, a grain ship that is heading to Rome. Well, here now we find the ship that, ha- that will have a full complement of 276 men. And many of those men are prisoners headed to Rome to face the lions. Rather than execute them uh, in various places wherever they were uh, caught for their crimes, many would just be taken to Rome to enter into the Colosseum, that uh, uh, the leadership there and the people might uh, have enjoyment in seeing the blood that is shed of many. And many of those would be Christians. They continued to hug the coast as they went on in this particular ship until the winds prevented them from continuing in this direction. Contrary winds. It's a reminder of what the ministry is like when we serve Jesus Christ. Every step we take sometimes out in the world, we're taking it against contrary winds. We're going to face those winds because the world is contrary to the message of the love of Christ. And so from Cnidus, they they sailed southward to the southern part of Crete, and they stopped in a place called Fair Havens until the weather improved, which tells you Fair Havens wasn't all that fair. The weather wasn't all that great. But I guess if you call a place Fair Havens, you might attract some people there for a time. Well, we're given a, a time frame by Luke to let us know that they were traveling in very dangerous times. It would have been early October, because it mentions in verse 9 the fast. What fast is that? That is the fast of Yom Kippur. That is the fast of the Day of Atonement. And when that day was over, that being in late September, then by the time they're on this ship, it's early to mid-October. 
And in that area, in that region of the world, the weather was getting much more difficult to travel in. Now, there would be a time when all ships would stop their travel. They wouldn't travel at all. Why? Because in winter, no ships traveled because there were too many shipwrecks. I guess they learned their lessons. So as much as they could get to uh, places through the Mediterranean uh, in the early October, let's hurry up and get there because it's getting... It's getting bad. We've noticed a little bit about uh, global warming recently. Uh, it's really a crock, I guess, huh? Because here we are in November, going into December, and we've already had snow in El Paso. So I'm really kind of looking around for where's global warming, you know, when you need it. The point is that we have weather change uh, sometimes early. And this is what they were facing in, in October as they were traveling. So, because of this, Paul offers advice. He offers advice to the leadership of the boat, to the leadership of, of, of the soldiers, uh, those who would listen. And he says to them, you know, we ought not to go this way. We're going to endanger everyone that's on this ship. I want you to remember why Paul does this. First of all, it, it, it shows us Paul coming out front as a leader. But remember that Paul had logged some 3,500 miles by sea during his missionary journeys. He's already gone through a lot of this type of weather. He's mentioned three times he was shipwrecked. So we know that Paul has experienced some of these things. And he's trying to let them know what is going to happen. He's been in prayer. Paul never gets on a ship without prayer. He never gets into situations without having prayed and sought the face of the Lord. So Paul is saying that something's going to happen and they're not taking him seriously. Does that sound familiar? The thing to note again is that, that Paul here comes to the forefront as God's man on this ship. He comes to the forefront and he becomes the master of the situation. Paul many times became the master of situations as God had placed him there as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Wherever it might have been, when arrested in Philippi for preaching the gospel and taken into the prison with Silas, Paul became the master of a situation where many others would have been filled with woe and wonder. Paul and Silas in the middle of the night began to sing praises to God. They began to sing so wonderful that it just shook the whole place. Well, actually, there was an earthquake that took place. And it opened all the prison doors and everybody was getting ready to leave. And, and, and the prison uh, guard there uh, was afraid that he was going to lose his head because everybody was going to run. And, and, and he said, what, what must I do to be saved? And Paul leads him to Christ. Paul became the master of a situation, you see. Time and time again in the life of the Apostle Paul... He, begin, he becomes the master of situations because God has placed him there as his man. See, wherever we may go as believers in Jesus Christ, God is going to place us where we need to surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit so that it may be that we become the master of a situation and let God use us to lead others to Christ. So here Paul... Uh, by the way, takes leadership in the situation, gives advice. Of course, they don't listen to him. But it tells us something. Eventually, everyone is going to be taking orders from Paul. 
as we shall see. So here's something else that we can learn from a man who walks with God, because Paul certainly walked with God. Are you ready? Here's something that we can learn from a man who walks with God. Situations or circumstances never affect his fellowship and communion with the Lord. Let me say that again. Situations or circumstances never affect Paul's fellowship and communion with the Lord. Situations and circumstances never affect a person who walks with God. It never affects his fellowship or his communion with the Lord. It doesn't matter what he faces, he knows that God is with him. No matter what he faces, he he knows that the Lord has him there for a reason. Whatever it might be, whatever the circumstances may be, Paul is still in chains here. And too often, when people begin, who, who call themselves Christians, begin to find themselves in situations where it's getting too hot, uh, too weird, uh, too, too uh, threatening, whatever, they begin to want to take many steps back, or not listen to what God is saying. Or they may be, begin to say, oh God, where are you, where are you, where are you, where are you, because I'm in the midst of a, a bad situation or a bad circumstance. Well, wait a minute, God said He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He never promised us a rose garden. But He did say that we would go through many difficulties in this life, but He would be with us through it all. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul says in in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, Paul says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. In whatever state I'm in. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to be without things and I know how to be with the stuff that God has, has allowed me to have. He says, everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry. I can be full with God and with Christ. I can be hungry with God and with Christ. He says, I can both uh, abound and, and suffer need. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a reason why circumstances never affect his fellowship with God. Why circumstances never affect his communion with the Lord. Because he says, I can do all things through Christ. I can be strong through Christ. I can be weak in Christ. I can be without everything, but I know that Christ is with me and I can be strengthened in the midst of that. Listen, if a, if a person asks you, how are you doing? Listen carefully to me. If a person asks you, how are you doing? Do not say to them, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. Please do not say that. I'm okay under the circumstances. The guy says, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? You see, when we keep our eyes on the Lord... He will keep us above the circumstances. Do you remember Peter on a boat on the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus is not with them at the time, but a storm comes up and the storm is tossing their boat to one side or another. I mean, winds just moving it backwards and forwards. And then Jesus goes out to them, walking on the water, and Peter sees him. And Peter gets out of the boat because Jesus says, Come to me. And none of them come except Peter. And Peter is walking on the water, going to Jesus. And as long as Peter's eyes are on the Lord, he is above the circumstances. As soon as Peter looks at the sea, looks at the waves, looks at the storm, he begins to sink. 
And what does Jesus say? How are you doing over there, Peter? He says, oh, I'm okay under the circumstances. It's not a matter of being under the circumstances. It's a matter of knowing that when you are with God, you will always be above the circumstances. So don't say, oh, I'm okay under the circumstances. You don't have to say that. Why? Because if God's with you, and you're believing and trusting in Him, then you're always going to be above the circumstance, as long as you're keeping your eyes on Him. So keep your eyes on Jesus. The minute you take your eyes off of Jesus, you find yourself under the circumstances. Paul always seemed to be above the circumstances, because he always kept his eyes on the Lord. But now the circumstances were going to change. Notice, if you will, in verse 14, it says, But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon. So when the ship, by the way, Eurocladon is a a combination of a Greek and a Latin word, or uh, a Greek and a Latin word put together, which just means north and east. It's talking about northeastern winds. We have those here called nor'easter winds. You all heard of that? That's a Eurocladon. So when the ship was caught, well, we don't have them here, but up in the northeast they do. When the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff or a lifeboat with difficulty. I believe that's the third time now we've seen the word difficulty here. When they had taken it on board, in other words, they secured the lifeboat and they got it back on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis Sands. In other words, they didn't want to uh, have the ship go all the way south to the northern coast of Africa. Those were the Sirtis Sands. They struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship So whatever could be thrown overboard, they did, so that the ship would not be as in danger as before. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle. Now, it's not totally understood whether the tackle is the mainsail or the anchor, but uh, they they threw that overboard, it says, with our own hands. So now we see Luke and Paul and, and Aristarchus joining everyone in helping out the situation that was going on on this ship. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, which means there was always cloud cover, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. And that, that, that's a pretty ominous statement that uh, Luke writes. He says, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. He speaks primarily as a whole for everyone except Paul. Again, we, we, we notice that Paul and his companions obviously weren't afraid to do their part in helping to alleviate matters, but matters were not improving. Things were looking pretty hopeless. Let me ask you a question. Are there times in the Christian life that things appear appear? Hopeless. If we're honest, we say yes. If we're honest, we say yes. 
But let me ask you this question. What happens when God's people come to the end of their own abilities? What happens when people come to the end of their own abilities? A lot of times we act before we pray. And then we realize how quick our abilities are limited. For those who don't pray at all because they don't know the Lord, they do everything they can until they finally lose all hope. But it has been said, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's extremity... The extreme nature of the worst situation is God's opportunity to show himself strong, especially for his people. And here now is where the teapot is in the tempest. Here was the teapot in the tempest. And here is where God intervenes. Here is where this great event is taking place and this little teapot is right in the middle of it. And while some of the people even on the boat to this, in, in this particular story have underestimated everything, God has not. Here's where we begin to clearly see the sovereignty of God in what has been taking place. Verse 21, but after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Man, you should have listened to me. Let me say now and I'll say it again. Paul is not saying, I told you so. This is not Paul's intention. His intention is, pay attention. You should have paid attention to me. So he's not saying, I told you so. So understand. Man, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. In other words, I'm encouraging you. I see you all as discouraged, depressed maybe. But I encourage you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Everybody's going to stay alive here. The ship's not, but you will. And then he says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God's hand. Therefore, take heart, he says. Man, be encouraged. And then he says something I want you to, I, I mean, I want you to mark, highlight, arrow it, what Paul says. He says, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. I believe God. I want you to notice that it doesn't say I, I believe in God. I believe there is a God. I believe there's one God. He says, I believe God. And I stand by what God says. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Things are going to happen. But you're going to be safe. Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in, in the Adriatic Sea, that, that's an interesting mention there, because if you look at a map, you know, you see the Mediterranean is pretty big, and the Adriatic is up north. And so it just kind of tells us they were all over the place. About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now, these are sailors. These are the professionals on the boat. 
And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. They were getting closer and closer to land. And then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They were praying for day to come. They might have been praying to false gods or idols or whatever, but they were praying. Well, first of all, please understand that when Paul stood up to address everyone, that it wasn't, again, with the intention to say, I told you so, it was, for, uh, it was to offer hope to them and say to them, pay attention to me now. Pay attention to me. I told you what was going to happen. It's happened, so pay attention to what I have to say. So think about this for a moment. Think about this. Here's where the centurion and the crew underestimated the consequences. Here was the teapot in the tempest. The prisoner Paul tells the centurion, he tells the guards, he tells the captain of the ship, he tells the sailors that they should have paid attention to him when, they, when he warned them. He, uh, had they listened, everything would be alright. But they didn't believe him. First of all, we said they didn't take him seriously and they didn't believe him. Does that sound familiar? They didn't take him seriously. They didn't believe him. Well, people don't believe God's messengers today. A lot of people just don't believe God's messengers today. We, as God's servants, are telling them that the world is in a terrible storm. Or we're telling, them the, telling the world of a terrible storm that's coming upon this present world and speaking according to the Word of God. We're telling them, listen, this is going to happen. Look at all of the things that already have, have happened. Look at all of the things that the Bible says has, has predicted and they've come to pass. I mean, they, the Bible has an excellent, perfect, 100% record of having things come to pass. This is what is going to happen. Look at our nation. Look at our world. Look at the things that are going on. But people aren't listening. Why? Because they don't believe. So our encouragement to them, our encouragement to people is, listen, listen to us. It's happening. Come to Jesus Christ and find rest for your souls. Come to the Lord. Because when you come, you'll be coming to safe harbor. No matter what takes place, in this world. If you come to Christ, you will be in safe harbor. Many of us in this room came into this very same weight of burden. Wow, the world is getting bad. Things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. There's wars. There are rumors of wars. Jesus predicted it. He's right. I need to get my life right with God. And we've come to Christ. And no matter what, the, what winds are contrary against us, we're safe. Because we're in Jesus Christ. No matter the storms we will face in this life, we will find our salvation only in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor. His invitation was to Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Paul told them, you're going to lose the ship. But you're not going to lose your lives. Everyone is going to be saved. Now understand that that's talking about their physical lives. Their physical lives are going to be saved. Which would give Paul an opportunity to tell them about Jesus so that their spiritual lives would be saved too. I want you to go back to verse 23 for just a moment. <clears throat> because here Paul is telling them how he knew this. <clears throat> for there stood by me this, ain- this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, he says, take heart, be encouraged, men. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. So in effect, what Paul was saying to them was this. I am the servant of the Most High God. I belong to Him. I serve Him. And I am in His service even now. You couldn't see Him because your eyes were on the storm. But the Lord sent an angel to me with with God's promise about making it to Rome and, and, and you with me. So here is the sovereignty of God. The Lord speaking and declaring His purpose. Now, as I said, while temporal salvation is implied, you know, their physical salvation, it it may be that many of them would come to know eternal spiritual salvation through this very experience. But it brings to mind another question that we need to deal with. And here's a question we need to ponder. When God chooses, when God elects, when God predestines those who are going to be saved through all eternity, who are they? This is a major question in the church today. How does God choose? How does God elect? How does God predestine? Who are they? You know, who the, you know what the simple answer is? The simple answer is all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But we, what, we, what we also need to know is that when the Lord does predestine, when He does choose and when He does elect, He does so in love. Turn to Ephesians very quickly here. I'm going to put it in overdrive in just a minute, so we're going to, I'm going to try to take this easy because I want you to learn what the, what, what, what the basis is of, of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. First of all, we're dealing with God's sovereignty in our salvation. Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul himself writes, just as he chose us in him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Remember that phrase. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That... Notice, we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. According to the good pleasure of His will. So far, so good. That's the sovereignty of God. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. Titus, uh, Paul said to Titus. And so did He predestine us? Now this is the very important question. Did He predestine us to go to heaven while others are predestined to go to hell? Don't, Don't try to answer this. Just listen. May I tell you that it never says that? I tell you that it never says in the scriptures that he predestined some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. Never says that. It does say that he predestined us 
that we should be holy and without blame before Him. He predestined us to be holy and without blame before Him. The Lord insists, you see. The Lord insists on man's responsibility to face his sins before Him. The Lord insists on man's responsibility to turn to Him in repentance. The Lord insists that on man's responsibility to put his trust in the Lord Jesus. And then consider the invitation. We talked about that invitation of Jesus saying, come to me. But consider that the invitation is a broad invitation. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a broad invitation. Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Paul calling on, on the book of Joel to quote from the Old Testament. For whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Revelation 22 verse 17. Even to the very end, this is the message. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires. Whosoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And yet we know that it is still God who saves and we don't. So with that in mind, just as, just as a little side lesson in theology here, back in our text with this bit of understanding, we see one side of this great truth here on this ship. God said that the men sailing with Paul are all going to be saved. Well, that's settled, isn't it? Because God said it would happen. Which brings to mind, can you say with Paul, I believe God. I stand by what He said to me. Can you say that with Paul? See, don't say what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I believe in God, I believe that there is a God, I believe that there is one God, I believe in, in this and that. Listen, it's he said, I believe God, and I stand on what he says. Can you say that with Paul? Why do I bring this up? Well, because I want to ask you another question. Why are so many Christians miserable today? Why are so many Christians miserable today? Well, the simple answer again is that they're not standing by what the Lord says. They're not standing on the, what the Lord says. How many of you know that it says in the Scriptures, God saying to man that believes in Him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How many of you know that? Why? Because it's in the Scriptures. Who said it? God. Do you believe it? Well, then you've got to live that. How many of you believe what Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 28 when He said, I will be with you always even to the end of the age? You know it because it's there. Do you believe Him? Do you believe what He said? Alright then, what's the problem? Do you believe in Philippians 4.19 where Paul says, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Then what's the problem? There are those people today who worry. They worry about their salvation. And they just need to heed the words of Jesus. 
Jesus said this in John 5.24. Most assuredly I say to you. Now when he says most assuredly, he says, if Jesus is assured, would you pay attention? Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. So how many of you hear his word? How many believe in him? Who said me has everlasting? You have everlasting life. All right. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Okay. So please don't worry then. And what about John 6.40? Now, I'm not telling you to get out of the mode of humility here. I'm humbled by God's salvation. So I have nothing to boast in. See, and then in John 6.40 it says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise Him up at the last day. Do you believe it? Then say, I believe God and I stand by what He says. All right. So what's the problem? Problem is, we need to believe. We're getting back to the ship. All they have to rest on all they had to rest on through 14 dreadful days and nights was the Word of God and the promise of God that they should get safely to shore. That's what they had. There are times in our lives when things are going wrong. There are times in our lives when it looks like we're headed for the rocks. Does that sound familiar? I think all of us can say we've been there. But face anchor... You remember when they were headed toward the... They threw the four anchors out? Faith's anchor holds because God's Word never fails. Faith's anchor holds because God's Word never fails. So the next section now is going to take us from sovereignty of God into what? The responsibility of man. Look at uh, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship... The, the experts, the professional sailors. When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting on anchors from the prow. In other words, uh, they're saying, oh, we're putting anchors, but what they were doing was putting the lifeboat back in the water so that they could get in the, and get away, and the, the big ship will be destroyed. They'll save themselves. Paul caught on, and he said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Whoa. Unless these men stay in the ship, you who are on the ship cannot be saved. Because God said all who are on this ship would be saved. If they take off, we all die. Interesting thought. What the lesson is, is the responsibility of man. Not so much... God going back on His Word, because God doesn't go back on His Word. Understand, we cannot separate the sovereignty of God from the responsibility of man, and man's responsibility from the sovereignty of God. They work together. And that's the lesson here. They were given God's Word of salvation. Listen carefully. Given God's Word of salvation, but some of the sailors were going to attempt to save themselves and let the ship go to pieces. How many times do people try to save themselves? It's what I do. It's how I do it. It's what I say. It's how I pray. I pray better than you. I do, the, I do these things better than you. You're not going to save yourself. 
But people get the idea that uh, they can go beyond what the Word of God says or what God says. So Paul has to speak up here. And not only are the sailors kept from leaving the ship, but their means of doing so was cut off. Do you know what they did? They cut the boat away. They kept the sailors on the ship, and they cut the others cut the boat away. God has to do that sometimes with us. When we're trying to find a way out, He cuts those things away, and He says, you're going to stay with me. You're better off. How many things in this life has God cut away that we were dependent upon? We've got to let them go. Now, some might say, if God already foreordained our salvation, then what's the difference? What, what difference does it make what anybody else does? Well, here it makes a great difference. Don't you think it makes a great difference? God says all of you are going to be saved. You get off this ship, well, what won't happen? But you see now how powerful the sovereignty of God is? And yet how necessary the responsibility of man is? It makes a great difference. So it's clear now, you see. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Now let's apply it to our Christian life. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. We hear the gospel. We hear the invitation, whosoever will come. We see the gate. We see the doorway. And it says, whosoever will come. And we go through it. Oh, I, I need the salvation of Christ. We go through that doorway. We make the step. We take that invitation. And we go toward the door. And as we walk through that door where it says, whosoever will come, we walk in. And as we walk in and we look back onto the inside of the doorway, it says, from the foundation of the world, saved. I don't understand it. But God does. The responsibility of man to come to Christ, then we learn the sovereignty of God. Saved from the foundation of the world. Who say? Who are they? Those who trust in Jesus Christ. Well, we've got to finish this uh, journey here because of time and because of our communion time today. Paul takes charge again of the ship. Paul takes charge. Look at verse 34. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment. He says, come on, let's eat. For this is your survival. It's for your survival. Since not a hair will fall from, your, from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things. Now remember, some guys were trying to escape. They were brought back into the ship. They're probably upset. Paul's saying, listen, you guys need to eat. So, when he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. He wasn't ashamed of his Christianity. He wasn't ashamed of being a believer in Jesus Christ. He took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat, and then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, Paul says, eat up, but when you're done, let's lighten the ship. And they threw out the wheat into the sea so that they might continue on on their journey. Two things of great importance here. 
First of all, Paul's confidence in believing God's word. Secondly, the fact that the 276 people that were saved were delivered with difficulty and through great trials. Delivered with difficulty and through great trials. But they were saved. In other words, God fulfilled His Word. God fulfilled His Word. And at this point, as in any experience, when a person has responded to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Undoubtedly, the enemy steps in with destructive thoughts. Look at verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach, onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and let, left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, which would probably be a reef, they ran the ship aground, and the, and the prow or the bow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And notice verse 42. Here's what I was talking about. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. <laughs> the enemy's always trying to confuse the issue. Did God really say he's going to save you guys? You prisoners get off this boat. These guards are trained to kill you. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept him from their purpose. Had he been listening to what Paul had been saying? kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Even though we have an enemy that tries to upset the things that God has already done, you cannot upset what God has promised would happen. And because they stayed on the ship, God saved them. And everything was exactly as Paul had said. The ship's going to be lost, but you're going to be alive. And what God promises, He will surely bring to pass. Always remember that. What God promises, He will surely bring to pass. Now, I didn't mention it this way, but we've just gotten through four storms. We've just gotten through four storms. And I want you to see what those storms were. First of all, we have just gotten through the perfect storm. The perfect storm is the storm that draws us closer to Him to trust Him more. The perfect storm will always draw us closer to Christ to trust Him more. Secondly, there was the correcting storm, <clears throat> the storm that gets us back on track after we've come back to him? They had a correcting storm. They could have gone way off track, but the storm drew them back on, on, on in direction where God wanted them to go. And then there's the third storm, the protecting storm. The storm that takes us away from potential disaster to protect us 
from that disaster. You know, sometimes we wonder, Lord, why are we going through so many storms in life? Maybe we ought to start heeding the fact that God is using storms to get us back to Him. Lastly, the fourth storm is the directing storm. That would be the storm that would take Paul exactly where the Lord wanted him for his purposes, which next week would be Malta first and then Rome. Malta to share the gospel, Rome to fulfill God's purposes in Paul's life. I want to close as we come to the table of communion this morning with the words of the Apostle Paul about the faith of Abraham. Because when you see what he says about the faith of Abraham, you can apply that same kind of faith in the life of Paul throughout this whole series of events. He said in Romans 4, verses 20-25, of Abraham, he says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised was also he was also able to perform. In other words, what God promises, God performs. And then notice verse 22, And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him or, or put into his account, but also for us. It shall, it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. When you look at the words of Paul about Abraham, you can see Paul in this. Paul did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Paul never disbelieved God. Paul, in fact, believed God and stood by what God said. And then it says, but was strengthened in faith throughout all of this situation, in chains, on a ship, being tossed to and fro. I'm sure they tossed a lot more things than just, uh, you know, they tossed cookies too. In the midst of all of that, Paul was strengthened in faith and giving glory to God. Verse 21 is about Paul too, being fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to perform. That is what Paul lived on that ship. And that is how we are to live while we are on the teapot in the tempest that we face each and every day as Christians and as believers in Jesus Christ. We come to the table of communion. Today's a good day to think of those issues that we've kind of highlighted. Can we say, I believe God and I stand by what He says. I believe God when I take this bread. It is a symbol of the body of Jesus Christ broken for me. Already done. Already accomplished. When I take this cup, I believe that it is the representation of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that. And I stand by what he says. I believe God, and therefore, I'm not going to live under the circumstances. I'm going to live above the circumstances of my life. And I'm going to rejoice through every trial. In every circumstance. Shall we pray?